Good morning, I'm Assistant Pastor Elliot Everett, and invite you to take your Bibles with me. We'll be in the book of Genesis this morning in Genesis chapter 32. We're going to look at the last uh, half of that chapter starting in verse 22. If you know anything about the story of Jacob as it comes to us in Genesis, uh, you'll remember that his story begins with him swindling from his father and his brother the firstborn blessing, even though God had promised that he, the younger brother, would be the one to be blessed. And even in despite of his sin against his father and his brother, Isaac himself says, and indeed, yes, he will be blessed because of God's promise. And so where we find Jacob this morning, as we look in Genesis 32, it's years and years later, years in exile, years away from home, years fearing for his life because of the hatred of his brother Esau, years working for his uncle Laban, years of marriage to two sisters, and now he has 12 sons, and it's at this point in his life God tells him to return home. And he has no idea what kind of home he's returning to. And he has to deal with his doubts and his insecurities as he's on his way. Uh, but as we're about to read here, he deals with something much greater than that. So if you would, let's read here Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. The same night he arose and took, two, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day... The people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us this morning. If I asked you without any context, what would it be like to meet God? I wonder what would come to your mind most naturally. What would it be like to meet God? I wonder how you think you would come out of that meeting. What would you be like on the other side of that meeting? What we see with Jacob here, he realizes that he has met God face to face. And Jacob walks away, but not without a limp. Jacob, we even see, rejoices, but not before he has despaired. Jacob, I would say, is stronger than he's ever been in his life, but not before he has encountered despair and weakness like he didn't think possible. Jacob has not only met God, Jacob has striven with God. 
So I want to look at three things here. I want to see Jacob meeting God, wrestling God, and then finally I want to look at the blessing of God. So the first thing is, is meeting God. Jacob has met God. It's here on the banks of the river Jabbok that God meets Jacob. So at this point in his story, this is Jacob on his way home, returning home in obedience to God, not something he had done naturally his whole life. It's here, Jacob wondering what kind of home he's returning to, Jacob fearing for his life and also for the lives of his wives and children. And it's here, I would suggest to you that for the first time clearly in his life, what Jacob has seen is that he can no longer rely on himself. Because that's what he's done the, his whole life, is he's relied on himself. And it's now here at the bank of this river, he realizes he can't. And that is the moment that God meets him. One commentator put it like this, God must take away the things that we have gained ourselves in order to give us what he has to give. God has to take away the things that we've gained for ourselves so that he can give us what he has to give. And that's what I think he's doing with Jacob here. I don't know if you remember the movie, uh, Catch Me If You Can. Uh, it was a movie uh, based on a true story of a man named Frank Abagnale. Frank Abagnale was the greatest Czech counterfeiter in United States history. And the thing about Frank Abagnale is that his entire life was a con. He was a con man. Whatever he needed to be, he could be it. Uh, he, he would scheme and manipulate everywhere he went. If he needed to be a doctor, he pretended to be a doctor. He needed to pretend to be an airline pilot, he pretended to be an airline pilot. He needed to pass the bar after not going to law school. He studied for two weeks and he passed the bar so he could marry the judge's daughter. That was Jacob. Jacob was just like this. The self-made man. The schemer, the manipulator, taking things into his own hands because nobody was going to do it for him. And so he did it. He needed the firstborn birthright, so he tricks his brother into giving it to him. He needs the firstborn blessing, so he tricks his father into giving it to him. He needs, he wants, he sees Rachel and wants to marry her. Laban says, work for me for seven years. He says, done. He wakes up the day after the wedding with Rachel's sister, Leah. Goes back to Laban and says, I still want to marry Rachel. And he says, work seven more years for me. He says, done. Anything that Jacob needed to do to get what he wanted, he did. And by the end of it, by the end of it, at this point, he's rich. He's made it. He's prospered materially. Uh, he, his uncle Laban was blessed mightily through his work and, and through having him there. But the problem is, as you look at Jacob's story, he'd left a wake of destruction in the lives of everybody that he touched. And it's at this point in his life that God meets him. And what you see after you read the story is that he's never the same. He's never the same. Israel, the nation as it would become, is never the same. I think that's part of the reason we're told there, why they don't eat the sinew on the hip. Even the people of God as it would, they would become from this man are never the same. You see, the thing about Jacob and the thing about us is the most deadly temptation that you and I can believe is the lie that you can be self-made. But we've all done it, and we all do it, and we all keep going back to the well. No matter how empty it is, we believe the lie that we can be self-made. And I want you to think of even just in the Old Testament, how that story plays out through the head, the thread of history of God's people. It was the lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. 
You can be self-made. Take it for yourself. And they did. It was the lie that Cain, their son, believed in bringing sacrifice that God was not pleased with. It was the lie that Cain believed in rising up against his brother in the field. It was the lie the whole earth believed before the flood. It was the lie that the citizens of Babel believed when they built a tower. It was the lie that Abraham struggled with trying to believe the promise, but still trying to do it on his own. It's the lie that Israel believes over and over and over again in their history, especially in the moment when they demand a king like the other nations. It's the lie that David believed on the roof when he saw Bathsheba. It's the lie that King Nebuchadnezzar believed on the roof when he beheld his kingdom and said, look what I have made for myself. Here's another interesting thing about that lie. It was the lie that Jesus most persistently consistently and enthusiastically railed against in his teaching and in his encounters with people. And we're lying to ourselves if we don't believe that at the end of the day, this is our greatest struggle. So if you're anywhere close to realizing that, you may ask, well, what do I need to do? We need what happened to Jacob. We need to meet God. Because if there's one thing the Bible makes clear about each and every person that ever meets this God is that the first thing to go is any illusion of self-sufficiency. It does not stand before this God. It cannot. And that's what melts away for Jacob here. Some of you, your life, maybe recently, maybe for longer than you want to admit, has been a shadow of loneliness or nagging wrongness or shame and guilt because of the way you've handled things or choices you've made. Uh, Others of you, maybe you've known times of great faith, growth in faith, deep faith, but you do look at it sometimes and say, it doesn't seem as consistent anymore. Some of you have been around the things of God, but you have no idea that you've actually never met him. The good news for all of us, no matter where we are, is that just like it was for Jacob, God is going to meet you but he might do it by ripping out from under you the rug of self-sufficiency that you've built your life on. And it might be the fight of your life, like it was for Jacob. So that's meeting God, but when he meets God, what happens is he wrestles with him. It's an interesting story, right? Number two, I don't know how many of you are fans of wrestling. Um, I told Chuck I wasn't gonna say that, but then I did. Um, It's not like that. But we're told that a man met Jacob and wrestled with him. Verse 24, we see Jacob's alone. He's he's stressing. He's And then suddenly, seeming as it reads, out of nowhere, man is wrestling with him. So you think about Jacob. He's come all this way. He's prospered. He's now even obedient. You go back to verse 10, and Jacob prays this prayer, thanking God for his grace and thanking God that he is who he is because of how God has blessed him. Jacob gets it at this point in his life. And here, right before he gets there, right before he gets back home, God gives him the fight of his life. It's an interesting turn of events. We learn here not for the first time and not for the last time, this God is not a tame God. C.S. Lewis got it this so artfully in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? When, when the children are hearing about this lion named Aslan, and so they ask, is he quite safe? And the beavers tell him, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
So you see, God indeed meets Jacob time and again where he was in his life. But what we see ultimately, especially through this wrestling match, as it were, is God is not going to leave Jacob where he found him. He's not. This God is a God of grace. You think about this. This God is a God of grace. He shows it time and time again. He's a God of grace as such. He will meet you wherever you are. He will. He will come down to you. He will meet you in your life, in your circumstance. He will draw near to you. He doesn't have to, but he will because he's a God of grace. You think about some extremes here. I mentioned them a couple of weeks ago when I preached, but the thief on the cross Such a short little story that we get about this guy. He says that he is deserving of the punishment he's receiving on the cross by his own admission. Yet he asked Jesus if he could be with him in in his kingdom. And Jesus says he would be with him that day in paradise. You go back earlier in the gospel of John, you have Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the teacher of the law who comes to Jesus in the night. And it's like, okay, Jesus, I think you got something going on. I want to be a part of it. And Jesus blows his mind by saying, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom. And he walks away dumbfounded. Yet it's that same Nicodemus that after Jesus has died, Nicodemus comes with 75 pounds of expensive ointment to prepare Jesus's body for burial. And so just in those two examples, you see that there's no amount of brokenness, even up to the last minute. There's no amount of self-righteousness that puts you out of the reach of this God. But God is never going to leave you where he found you. And what, here's what I, Jacob learned this night is that God is not going to comfort us into a transformed life. If he has to, he'll fight us for it. God's not afraid to get his hands dirty. It's amazing, you look at verse 24, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I love verse 24. The way the Hebrew reads there is this, a man came and Jacobed with Jacob. Remember when Jacob was still in the womb of his mother with his brother, his twin brother Esau. Esau is born first, he's the older, but we're told that Jacob was holding on to his ankle. He was grasping. And so he's named Jacob, which means grasp or strive or manipulate. And so here this man meets Jacob to Jacob, Jacob, and I would say he out Jacob's Jacob. And so it's this night down by the river, right? That Jacob takes stock of his life. He looks at his life. Jacob would have told you that his problem was that he had tricked his father. He would have told you his problem was he had tricked his brother. He would have told you his problem was now Esau. But God comes to him, meets him, wrestles with him and tells him this. Jacob, your problem is with me. And if you don't deal with me, you will be lost forever. Your problem is the way that you've related to me. Jacob, for your whole life, you have been wrestling God. You have been striving against God and man. And so this is what Jacob had to realize. Jacob had to realize that his problem in life was not that he wasn't the firstborn. 
His problem was not that he needed to figure out how to get the firstborn birthright and blessing. His problem was not that he just needed Rachel in his life. God comes and says, look, you're not wrestling Esau. You're not wrestling your father. You're not wrestling your uncle Laban. You're not wrestling the hardships of this life. You're wrestling me in everything that you do and the way that you've reacted in this life. You are striving against me. And so here I am. Jacob, the problem beneath all your problems is that you have believed that you could be your own Lord and master. And in a sense, God says, shows up and says, okay, bring it on. And what we see through this encounter, God loved Jacob. God promised blessing through Jacob. And so God literally hits Jacob on the head to break him of his pride and his self-sufficiency. Jacob thought it was Esau. He thought it was his transgressions that would keep him from the promised land. But God says, no, it's the fact that you think you can do it yourself. That is what is holding you back. And that is so deadly to your heart that if I have to, I will fight you for it. It is your belief that you are in control of your failures and successes. It is your belief that everything in life will come because of your ingenuity or your wits or your looks or your work ethic. It's your belief that you have made yourself who you are. And if you keep on believing that, it is deadly. Some of you, uh, I don't, if you're like me at all, I, I can swing wildly between two poles on this issue. But some of you, I have to believe when you read the story like I have at times, and you think to yourself, I know I can't do it myself. In fact, that dread, that anxiety, that insecurity haunts me every day. And I look at things in my life, some of my own choosing and some not out in my control. And I say, God, why won't you just take it from me? I know I can't do anything about it. And you think God's ignoring you. But what if what he's doing is loving you? Because he's driving you out of yourself and to him. Because that's what you need. Paul himself dealt with this and he recounts it in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about this thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. But he says, three times I pleaded with God to take it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so we see Jacob as a precursor to that. Jacob is wounded. But in his wounds, we see the blessing coming into his life. How do we see that? And that's the last thing here, the blessing of God. I want you to look at verse 28, what Jacob says, or what he gets. He gets from God there in verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. You've striven with God and with men, and you've prevailed, God says to him. So by, by verse 28, we understand Jacob gets it. Jacob's gotten the blessing. But I want you to ask this, when's the moment that he gets the blessing? When's the moment he gets the blessing? I suggest you it's verse 25, when we're told that the man touched his hip. 
That's the blessing. Jacob realizes in that moment that whoever this is that he's wrestling with could have destroyed him in an instant, but had not. And it's at that moment, catch this, it's at that moment he doesn't want to let go. Usually when somebody attacks you, your natural impulse is to flee. But here at his most defenseless, at his most vulnerable point, David, um, Jacob cannot let go. Jacob had been striving for the blessing his whole life. And what he realizes here face to face with God was that the blessing as he had thought of it was not what he needed. God was what he needed. And now he had him and he doesn't want to let go. And so he says, I will not let go until you bless me. I think in a sense, Jacob is having this existential moment of here is the approval that I had so longed for from my father. Here's the prestige that I so wanted like my brother. Here's the beauty that I was looking for in Rachel. Here's the kindness that I longed for that I got from my mother. But he looks at God and says, but you, you're the source of all of that. And I don't want to let go. And again, I think verse 28 is fascinating. Because this is what I think God says. God says, you've been striving against men and God your whole life. You win. Please tell me how that makes sense. You've been striving against God and man your whole life. You win. There's a paradox there, right? The paradox is that the man who is completely powerless and holding on for dear life, it's to that man God says, you win. The paradox is that in this story right here, the weak one is the strong one. That defeat is victory. It's the grand paradox. It's the grand paradox of scripture. It's the grand paradox of history. It's the grand paradox of the kingdom of God as it has come and is coming into the world. And in history, what we saw is that the king himself showed up and he made himself weak, perfectly obedient to his father. And he wrestled with his father in the garden of Gethsemane. You remember what he said? If there's any other way, please remove this cup from me. But God didn't just touch his hip. God crushed him. Yet even in the midst of that, to his last breath, Jesus clings to the Father and says, into your hands, I yield my spirit. Why? To secure the blessing. But Jesus already had it. He was securing it for us. If you long to meet God, you find yourself or have found yourself wrestling with God. You find yourself in different times and different ways, longing and striving for blessing in this life. As cliche as it can sound from a pastor in a pulpit, I can tell you nothing else than look to the cross and keep looking. Because I can guarantee you that if you keep looking, you are going to see something. 
You'll see that God does not reject you because of your weakness. What you see at the cross is that he became weak to meet you wherever you are. To walk with you, to heal you. Think about this. Jesus loves your dependence on him so much that he is willing to let everything else that you have depended on in this life fail you. So you'll give them up. Because, look, if you're anything like me, I'm not, I'm not old. I don't have that much experience in anything. But God does not want you to have a nice life. He wants you to have him. That's it. And he wants to have you. I'm reminded one of my favorite passage, I think, from all the Chronicles of Narnia. Sorry, two Chronicles of Narnia and one sermon, but I can't help it. The voyage of the Dawn Treader, the two children, Lucy and Edmund, they're realizing that this is their last time in Narnia. And so they're sad. And this is the exchange that they have with Aslan. They say, you know, it isn't Narnia, you know. It's you. We won't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are you there too, sir? Said Edmund. I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. That was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. I love that and how it fits here. Is I can't possibly know where you are this morning. But I can know for sure that God is telling you it is his purpose that by knowing him a little there, you might go on to know him more fully and more fully in the life ahead and the life to come. That is good news. That is great blessing. And it is for all of us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we long to know the blessing and the love with which you have blessed us by coming to us, by living life on our behalf and giving that life that we might be covered in your righteousness. And Father, as surely as our Savior lives, we pray that you would lift our hearts to know that this blessing is ours forevermore. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.